In a public high school in an outer borough of New York. You'd think she'd brag about that, but she doesn't. Occasionally I catch her telling someone that Andrew went to law school with this president or that first lady, and neglecting to mention his subsequent career. I usually tell her later, You should be proud of what he does. Algebra? She snarls, despite the fact that, unlike the progeny of a lot of New Yorkers who spend a fortune on tutors, Both of her children excel in math. Edwin was a public school teacher, so I expect a little more sensitivity. These conversations push chaste dates further into oblivion. Still in mourning, I am easily overwhelmed. Margot is divorced from Charles, a too handsome, board-certified physician with an ugly story who calls our apartment collect from his country club of a prison. He was, is, a gynecologist, now under suspension, with a reckless subspecialty that drew the lonely and libidinous. Patients came with an infertility story and left a little ruddier and more relaxed than when they arrived. Who were these women, Margot and I always marvel, who knew how to signal feet in stirrups, that a doctor's advances would be deemed not only consensual, but medical. Yes, Charles partnered with a sperm bank, whose donors were advertised as brilliant, healthy, handsome men with high IQs, graduate degrees, and above-average height. And yes, the vast majority of his practice was artificial rather than personal insemination. But for a few... The main draw was Charles himself, a silver-haired, blue-eyed, occasionally sensitive man, the kind of physician women put their faith in and develop a crush on. Overall, it was lucky that Charles suffered from borderline oligospermia, in layman's terms, a low-to-useless sperm count. Did he know? Of course. We're not sure how he framed these trespasses, but some patients must have told themselves that a doctor's fleshly ministrations, mid-cycle, were donor-like and ethical in some footnoted way, imagining the top-notch child and possible romantic entanglement that his DNA could yield. His bedside talents were such, apparently, that satisfied customers came back for subsequent treatments. Luckily. Only one procedure took. Only one child was conceived. One son eventually revealed through due diligence. Charles might still be practicing amorous medicine, except that his unknowing bookkeeper charged the paramours a fee commensurate with an outside donor, $5,000 the going rate at the time, and thus committed fraud of a punishable, actionable kind. Fraud on the books malpractice, adultery, grounds for divorce, and sin everywhere else. Margot left the day he was rather publicly arrested. Her settlement was enormous. She bought her penthouse, invested the rest catastrophically, and resumed the use of her maiden name. Edwin died one month before turning 50 without getting sick first due to a malformation of his heart valves that proved fatal. One morning I woke up and found that he hadn't, a sight and a shock that I wonder if I've yet recovered from.
Even 23 months after his death, his absence is always present. People assume I'm grateful for the memories, but where they're wrong is that the memories cause more wistfulness than comfort. It's hard to find a subject that doesn't summon Edwin, no matter how mundane. All topics, music, food, movies, wall colors, a stranger's questions about my marital status or the location of the rings on my fingers, bring him back. I haven't seen much progress in two years. Keeping someone's memory alive has its voluntary and involuntary properties. You want to, and you don't. You're not going to hide the photos, but neither will you relocate the images of his formerly happy, healthy, smiling face to your bedside night table. Amateur shrinks are everywhere. Ed wouldn't want you to be staying home, would he? To me, who never called him Ed.